Okay, so today we are wrapping up our series in the book of Revelation. So we started this series at the beginning of the year back in January, took a little time off uh, throughout the summertime, uh, but this series has spanned about nine months for us this year. In our culture, we have been trained as consumers to always be looking forward to the next thing. So we get excited about the next meal, the next week, the next vacation that we're going to be taking. We're always looking forward to something else. We're hardwired to look forward or anticipate what's coming. And part of the reason for this is that the true root of us feeling this is the gospel itself. We look forward to these temporary future happenings because there's an ultimate reality that is continually pulling us forward, drawing us further along. Now, many people have a vague sense of the afterlife. Oftentimes, our ideas of whatever is laying out there beyond death is misguided. But the divine design is that we would long for what's coming. And not just long for it, that we would seek after it. We, we would plead with God for that day to come. And given that, there's a sense in myself that feels a bit sad whenever I get to the end of a sermon series. When, it, when it's nine months long, you're probably like, thank you, Jesus, that this is almost done, right? But there's, within myself, there's always a sense of sadness. I've learned a lot in this series as we've walked through Revelation. I've been struck by how much Jesus there is in this book. Honestly, Part of the reason I wanted to do this book is because if you would have asked me three years ago that I'd be, if I would be preaching Revelation in a couple of years, I said, there's no way. I was, I was really intimidated by it. And so that was part of the reason that I wanted to preach through this because it was an exercise of faith for me as well to have to tackle some of these trickier parts of this book. But the more I studied and I was instructed by this book, the more I found life, the more I found freedom. Ultimately, what I found was Jesus himself. And this book has inspired a ton of hope in my own heart, and I hope that those of you who have walked through this series with us, that you have benefited in some significant ways as well. Okay, I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to jump into the verses we're looking at this morning. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to wrap up this series. I pray even in these last number of verses that we would see Jesus, that we would be drawn to you, that our hearts would be encouraged, our hearts would be challenged, and that you would show us that Jesus is what our hearts are longing for, and so may we find satisfaction in him in our short time together this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so this morning we're just going to methodically work our way through the verses. So we're, we're going to read a few verses, and we're going to talk about them, read a few, and talk about them. So let's begin. Revelation 22, verses 6 and 7. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. 
Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, in context, these words, these words are trustworthy and true, refer to what John has just been seeing about heaven. So he's been given some visions about what heaven is going to be like. So he's talking about that. Heaven will be an infinitely good place. But the statement, these words are trustworthy and true, is also a summative statement about the whole book of Revelation itself. The angel is communicating to John the necessity of taking all of Revelation seriously. That's what, that what is contained in this book is vital for those who are trusting in Jesus. And so the angel is telling John, who then is communicating to us, listen closely. Listen closely to the words contained in this book. So, so what's going on here? Whenever we read a long book, whenever we encounter things that maybe are hard for us to understand, we begin to hear like the blah, 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 right? Like we can read words, but our mind goes blank kind of thing. And, and that's our tendency in Revelation as well. And so there's this reminder here. Maybe we get to the end of the book and maybe we've been hearing the blah, blah, blah for a while and the calls go back. Read these words again. Hear them. And as we read through this last section of the Bible, we're confronted with statements filled with urgency. It's talking about the idea of Jesus coming to earth and about Jesus' church coming to him. So it's also saying that all of this is happening soon. It's happening soon. We see this emphasized here as the angel says, this is what must soon take place. And this is then followed in verse 7 by Jesus saying, I am coming soon. Now, many of us, maybe if we've grown up in the church, maybe we have some doubts or questions about the soon arrival of Jesus. I mean, we think it's been 2,000 years, right? In what way, in what universe is 2,000 years soon. So how can we take this seriously? Well, let's briefly give some biblical context for this. First of all, we've got to acknowledge our understanding of soon. We have a biased conception of soon. So when we hear soon, we oftentimes think five minutes from now, right? Or maybe in the next few days. That's what we think about when we hear soon. But what we've got to understand is that our idea of soon is grounded within the context of a sinful reality. So even our conception of soon is broken in some ways. Whatever we think of soon as is shaped by our own impatience. It's shaped by our sinful thoughts of superiority or betterness over others are viewing ourselves as more capable than others. Our soon is sooner than someone else's soon, right? So our idea of soon is broken compared to God's idea of soon. Now the Bible talks on numerous occasions about Jesus' return happening soon, and despite it taking thousands of years, whenever it happens, it will feel soon to those who are alive, to those who are encountering it. And the reason for this is the finality of Jesus' return. We don't know the hour 
that he will return. We also don't know when each of us is going to die, when we will stand in front of Jesus. So we don't know those things, but when either of those things happen, it's final. And at that moment, there's no second chances. It's all done at that moment. So Jesus talks about coming at like a thief in the night, right? And when a thief comes, no one expects it. It's very sudden when that happens. And the same is going to happen when Jesus returns. Maybe we can learn a little bit from Israel, right? Israel, for hundreds, thousands of years, were told that there is going to be this Messiah coming. And when that Messiah came, they didn't see it. They didn't believe it. They were looking for someone else. And so the call for us, for those trusting in Jesus today, is that we would know really clearly who Jesus has revealed himself to be, and we would look for that. We would not look for a political individual who's going to save us, because that's what Israel did. And how foolish of us to do the same thing that Israel did thousands of years ago. Okay. As we read then in the beginning of Revelation, I'm going back to the very first verses of Revelation. This is what it said. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. So this is how the book started. And now... We're reading here at the end of the book. In the last number of verses, it says, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this book. So this mirrors the call for urgency to be ready for Jesus' soon arrival. We are to keep these words, which means we are to believe them. We are to cling to these words. We are to prioritize the revelation of Jesus in our own lives over everything. So that means over YouTube. How easy is it to just run to YouTube, right? We think that's where rest is found. I'm going to go and veg out. I just need to watch a video on YouTube. Or we run to Twitter, or we run to Snapchat, or whatever it might be. There are these things that we will run to that are really easy for us. We just pull that device out of our pocket, and it's so easy. We don't even have to think about it at times. We run to these things. But what we're reading here in Revelation is that we are to prioritize the revelation of Jesus over all of these things because Jesus is more pertinent. Jesus is more relevant. This book of Revelation has what we need. Jesus is how we find rest. Our family has been reading a little bit in the Gospel of Mark at the beginning. And we've found Jesus there doing many things. But one of the things, one of the stories that really stuck out to me was Jesus healing people. And in one context, the whole town comes to Jesus and he's healing them. And I would think that at at the end of that, what Jesus needs is to just go be by himself, take a nap, a really long nap, 
and, and just chill out. But what Jesus does to go find rest is he goes and he prays. He goes to spend time with his Father. And this kind of jolted me as I was thinking about this because it's so easy for myself, and I see this in others as well. I see it in my family. This tendency, we think rest is found in many other things than Jesus. And looking at Jesus in this example in the Gospel of Mark, it just kind of slapped me in the face. Like, no, this is what Jesus did. And if Jesus needed this, if this is what he did to go find rest, how much more do I? How much more do I need to run to Jesus to see this revelation of him that we're given over and over in this book? Okay, Revelation 22. Let's read verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So John identifies himself as the one who heard these visions, who was seeing these visions. And in this, he then acknowledges his own misstep in falling down to worship the angel who was the one revealing these visions to him. And the angel was direct and clear. He was not to be worshipped. He says, I am not God. And the clear call for us then as we're reading this is to ensure that our worship is not directed at anything other than Jesus. Our worship is intended to be of Jesus. It is Jesus who is relentlessly revealed to us and portrayed as our Savior in this book. And so we must ensure we are worshipping who? Jesus. Only Jesus. All the days of our lives. Not for an hour on Sunday morning. All the days of our lives. All right, verse 10. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Again, John and Jesus are emphasizing the urgent nature of these words. The time is near. I am coming soon. So, Center Church, we can't just read over this quickly. We can't simply be dismissive of this repeated call We must stop and assess the priorities in our own lives. What do you do when you wake up each morning? What do you reach for first thing in the morning? What do you look at? What do you start thinking about? What excites you? 
or motivates you throughout your day? What are you willing to sacrifice for? What causes you to push through fatigue, to push through sickness, to push through despair? Does anything rival Jesus? Food, music, entertainment, having order and control in your life, exercise, does anything rival Jesus? We know things do. We know things do. And it says here, we live in a time where the evildoer will still do evil and the filthy will still be filthy. But the ultimate end of all of, the, of, of all of this is these individuals will not be in the city. The city we've talked about the last couple of weeks, which is the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which is how heaven is talked about in Revelation. It's saying that the evildoer will be outside. Or going back a number of weeks, these individuals will suffer in hell. And this is why there's such urgency here. Because hell is in view. And the call then is for us, don't mess with this possibility. Don't play with sin. Don't think half-heartedness towards Jesus is okay. Because it's no small thing. This is why John was given the vision of hell. This is a horrific end. No one wants that. And so, no one should want that. But conversely, Jesus is everything. It says in verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes. We know from earlier in Revelation, this is speaking about trusting in Jesus for cleansing. That's the only way that we're cleansed spiritually is through Jesus' sacrifice. The emphasis on Jesus as the slain lamb, which is probably the most prevalent theme throughout Revelation, Jesus as the slain lamb, so obviously depicts this. Our washing of robes occurs then as we believe the gospel and as we are shaped by God's Spirit, who then marks our lives in very distinct ways. This is how God marks our lives, with the fruit of the Spirit. He marks our lives with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And not one of these things. It's not like you get one per day. All of these things. This is what God's Spirit forms in us as we believe the gospel. And this is the defining mark of grace in our lives. The evidence that we are fully rooted in Jesus. Now don't hear me say that this is, anyone who's believing in Jesus is going to embody these things perfectly. Okay? We're all going to do this imperfectly. So this isn't a call to perfection at all. But these aspects, these fruits will continually grow in us. We will mature in such a way that there will be increasing love and increasing goodness, increasing faithfulness and kindness, gentleness in our lives. So the necessity of us being rooted in Jesus is seen in how he talks about himself. 
Jesus describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So the picture here then is Jesus is everything, not just a part of things. He is everything. He shapes every part of our lives. There's this passage in the New Testament, Colossians, a book called Colossians chapter 1. And this is what it says about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. So notice, not just the beginning and the end, but the in between. All things are holding together through him as well. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. Top of the line. Incomparable. No one like him. Not just a king, but he is the king of kings. All other kings fall below him. He is unlike any other. Supreme. No one like him, preeminent in all things. Okay, and then the final words of the Bible. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. All right, so there's a few things I want to draw out of these verses. First of all, there's this stark warning given in these verses. A call to not add to nor to take away from the, the words of the book of this prophecy. So what's clear here is God is serious about what is contained in this book. It is not to be trifled with. It is not to be tampered with in any way. Now why? Why is this important? Why is God giving this warning here? At the end. Well, I can tell you it's not because God is simply trying to strike fear into people's hearts and coerce some form of moral conformity. God is not saying this here for behavior management. That's not what he's going for. Everything else we read at the end of the book here speaks against this. God is not threatening death here to scare people. The Bible is clear. 
that God undertook this, his plan of redemption, of saving people from their sins because he loved them. That's why he came to earth, out of love. He gives warnings like this because his desire is to lead people not to death, but to life. Even here in these verses, twice he speaks of the water of life and the tree of life. He wants people to know life. He wants people to experience life. Here and now and forever as well. But he also knows our sinful hearts. He knows our tendency to selfishly suck the life out of things and then discard what we no longer have need of anymore. He knows our tendency to justify our own sin or to minimize our own sin. He knows our tendency to make ourselves not as bad as we really are or when we feel shame to hide so that people don't know who we really are, how messy our hearts are really are. He knows our tendency to not read the words of this book, to not read the words of the Bible, to not listen to the words of this book, to not keep the words of this book. God doesn't warn us so that we'd feel condemned. You've got to believe this. God is not warning us here so that we would feel condemned. He warns us to free us from condemnation. That's why God warns us. He warns us to free us from condemnation because that's how we're born. We're born condemned. We're born broken by sin. And we need to be rescued from that condemnation. But ultimately, what God wants is our joy. And so he does everything that he does to save us to set us free from this condemnation. Okay, secondly then, we've got to hear the invitation in these verses. Come. This should be like a warm blanket to us on a cold day. Come. This is an offer to the spiritually parched. To those who find themselves in a perpetual cycle of discontent. Seeing the carrot out in front of us and thinking, if I get that carrot and I consume it, I will be satisfied. And we get on that treadmill and we never get there. Or we get it and it doesn't ultimately satisfy us. So we wake up the next day and we get back on the treadmill and we're chasing after that carrot. This perpetual cycle of discontent. It's an offer to those who have this haunting sense that there must be more. Because there is. There's a whole lot more than what we settle for every day. It's an invitation to those who are spiritually thirsty. It's a can't-miss proposal for those who are spiritually bankrupt, who have nothing to offer to God. It should not surprise us that this is how the Bible ends. This is grace. 
This is grace. And this is also John's final word in verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Grace is what makes Christianity distinct. Every other religion this world has ever known calls for its adherents to work harder, to do better, to appease the deity. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not a ladder we strive to climb up to God through our spiritual accomplishments. The gospel is God climbing down into our sin-filled existence and dying for our sins. Coming as a baby, vulnerable, threatened. It's an unbelievable story, really. God comes to us and bears the punishment for our sin and does everything necessary to save us, not because of what we've done, but despite of what we've done and in spite of what we have done, our sin. He offers us then forgiveness of sin. This is grace. This is what John is pronouncing here. This is the final word of the Bible. An offer of grace. Come and receive this. Drink of this well that never dries up. And this has been John's agenda throughout this book. To scream grace at us. By focusing on Jesus and revealing him, he fixates our gaze on the one who brings and offers grace to us. In providing warnings throughout this book and to churches, he is graciously warning us of the dangers of turning our eyes and our hearts and our hopes away from Jesus. In giving us glimpses of heaven and our future, he is holding out a vision that is grace unending, grace in abundance. In spelling out the examples of wrath that will be seen and felt Throughout the history of this world, he provides us reminders of the wrath that is to come and ongoing reminders of our need daily to turn towards Jesus and to hope and to trust in him. In calling us to perseverance and endurance in faith while giving us examples like the two witnesses in chapter 11, we are charged with the opportunity to join Jesus in this unfolding mission here on earth to pursue others, to rescue others with the best news this world has ever known. There's not a greater endeavor we can be called into here on this earth than joining Jesus in his mission. In displaying Jesus as the conquering warrior, we know sin, Satan, death, and hell will fall. It will be no more. And we don't need to fear it. And this is what we read at the beginning of the Gospel of John 1.16. For from Jesus' fullness we have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Grace is the precious pearl that we are offered. And John is telling us, come. Come to the one who has come to you. Receive what he offers you. It is what you are longing for. It is what will satisfy your heart. 
And so when we know who Jesus is, when we understand his motivations are teeming with love for us, when we encounter his unmatched goodness, when our hearts are transformed by his grace, when we are finally convinced Jesus is the only hope for this God-forsaken world, we'll hear the exchange of verse 20 as good news. Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. Many of us hear that and we think, not yet. I've got this thing I want to do. I've got this thing I want to accomplish. But for those who are deeply rooted in the gospel, who are changed by grace, who are believing in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, who have understood this world is broken, and it will never offer to us what we are looking for, those respond with no hesitation. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. This has been a prayer of mine for you throughout this series. That you would get to the point where you give up on this world. That you would see that all that this world entices us with is empty. That it will never give you what it promises. It's smoke and mirrors. It's empty promises. It will not give you that full feeling inside. It will abuse you, and ultimately, it wants to destroy you. Deceive and destroy. This is Satan's agenda. So my hope has been that we would put our hope in Jesus because he alone deserves our hope. He alone is worthy of it. And this refrain, come Lord Jesus, is not a mere shot in the dark. It is not wishful thinking. This is what we're going to celebrate this week. This has happened already. In the Exodus, in the Old Testament, Israel cried out for God's rescue. And God came. And he saved them. In the deafening spiritual silence of the first century, Jesus came as a humble babe. He was not a threat. He was unimpressive. Many people did not recognize him. He became like us. In fulfillment of many promises, God came. And so we look at that and we believe, we trust. He has done it. He will do it again. He will come again. And so as his church, we join together praying for his arrival, readying ourselves for him, readying our loved ones, readying even God's enemies, Jesus' enemies, our enemies as well, readying all of us so that we would be ready for his arrival. So as we close, I want to end by reading one verse, not from Revelation, but from the book of 1 Peter. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. This is very Revelation-like in what we have read about in endurance and perseverance. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed, or, or set, set your, your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. So set your hope not in part. Set your hope fully. Put all of your eggs in that basket in grace. And so a point of gospel application for us today is that we would set our hope fully on grace. If you know what you have been forgiven, if you truly know what you have been forgiven, you will be astounded. If you don't truly know all you have been forgiven, you will likely be casual about grace and about Jesus. And if you sense that in your hearts, this is grace. This is a call for you to look at Jesus, to believe in grace, to set your hope fully on grace. Today, we live in a world that is against Jesus. Some hate him. Some misunderstand him. Some just don't know him whatsoever. May we be so relentless in setting our hope fully on Jesus that it just oozes out of us. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, that grace would ooze out of us, especially in political conversations, especially in conversations about the vaccine. But at all times, may grace ooze out of us. But this means one thing. We have to keep coming back to Jesus. We have to keep going to him, thinking on his death, reflecting on, considering his resurrection, hearing his teachings, seeing his compassion, receiving his love, being changed by him. This is what we mean by having that well-worn path to the cross. We've got to keep going back to the cross. We've got to keep going back to the empty tomb. Not just as these ideas that are out there. These have to be ideas that are actively changing us day by day. Our faith has to be being put in Jesus increasingly day by day. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on the hope that is found on Jesus. May we help one another do that as well. This isn't just individualistic efforts on your own. May we be Jesus' church. May we do this with and for one another, pointing each other to Jesus, speaking words of hope, giving grace to one another, embodying the gospel so that we can be, be built up, so that we can persevere and endure in faith until Jesus returns.